Hello and welcome to the Raw podcast brought to you by the Sunland Echo. Joe, Phil and James here. Today we're back for our regular Monday podcast to discuss Sunland's 2-1 defeat against Swansea at the Stadium of Light. And we're also going to answer some of your questions that you sent into us uh, over the weekend. Uh, guys, how are you both uh, after a couple of days on now from that game against Swansea at the Stadium of Light? Yeah. Probably uh, like everybody else, really. I think the main emotion is a little bit concerned that the season might be getting away from Sunderland a little bit. And, you know, when you look at the next few fixtures that are coming up, it, it's funny, isn't it? I remember right after the Middlesbrough game that even though it hadn't been a great performance from Sunderland, that they suddenly had a massive opportunity because off the back of the Stoke win where it felt like things had settled down a bit, getting a point against Middlesbrough, looked as if the fixture list was quite kind. And they actually had a chance to really build up a head of steam going in these run of three fixtures. And instead, you're kind of looking at it going, it's, it's make or break time for the season, isn't it? So, yeah, really disappointed with the first half performance in particular. And, yeah, I, I guess a, a little bit worried that there's a danger that we could get to that international break in March without a great deal to play for, which I think is a, mm. you know, we've had so many exciting ends to the seasons, haven't we, of late? That, yeah, I think, like everybody else, just sort of hoping that proves not to be the case. I'm only really interested in the the debut of a second Phil Smith new beanie hat in as many Sunderland Echo videos. Let, let's have a look for him. Yeah, this is my England. new Basball. This is my new Basball hat. Um, so yeah, it's very very blue. I didn't realise quite how blue it was going to be, but I like it. We'll roll with it. Mm-hmm. Going back to the to the playoff picture though, James Sunderland now uh, eight points off the playoffs with 12 games to go. Um, it does look a long shot for them to get into the top six, but I was just looking back at last season, actually with 11 games to go, they were seven points off uh, after losing 5-1 against Stoke at the stadium night. So that just kind of shows, although it, it looks unlikely that Sunderland will get in the playoffs this season, that it's not all hope is lost quite yet. Um, yeah, I think it's personally. I think it's it's done um, in terms of Sunderland and the playoffs. I, I wish I held a different opinion, but I just I don't see it at the moment. I don't see it working. That's not to say that Sunderland might not pick up some good results towards the back end of the season under Mike Dodds. Uh, it's it's entirely possible. But I just think those those playoff contenders are too strong. West Brom, Hull, City, they've strengthened. Um, Coventry, I think, will will be strong under Mark Robbins come the end of the season. Preston, Norwich, City are kicking around. So. For me, that actually the, the story is maybe that Sunderland are only twelve off off twenty first. Now I'm not saying they're going to regress that far, but it just feels like Sunderland this season they're going to be in mid table, which is really what we expected last season. But that didn't happen. We managed to push under Tony Mowbray and get to the playoffs because we had, you know, Ross Stewart for the first half of the season, Alice Sims. We had the magic of Ahmad Diallo, a fit Corey Evans for parts of the season as well. Um, and I just think, you know, Sunderland's, Sunderland's problems are well documented. You know, the strikers, it's a lack of experience. And I just, I can't see it at the moment. I, I, I hope dearly that I'm I'm proven wrong. Um, that would be absolutely lovely. But for me, I, I, I'm just not sure. Mm-hmm. We are also on Facebook Live, so you can send our comments, uh, your comments into us. Uh, and we can try and answer some of your questions. Uh, Tony Burns says, Phil, shocking clash of colour uh, for the hat versus the wall. <laughs> Oh wow! I hadn't really taken that into consideration. Um, yeah, I can't uh, unsee that. I can't um, unsee that now. <laughs> to be honest, I'll probably change the colour of the wall before the hat. So um, yeah, watch this. Hat staying. <laughs> Looking, uh, moving back to Sunderland. Then um, we mentioned it at the weekend. A 
four or three very tough fixtures coming up. It's Norwich away this weekend, then it's Leicester at home, then it's Southampton away. Um, but we have seen this season, Phil, when the kind of the pressure is on or it's a big occasion. Um, think back to the couple of games that Mike Dodds had in interim charge earlier in the season against Leeds and West Brom. Sunderland pulled out a performance in those two matches. So you wouldn't put it past them to, at least in one of these games or a couple of these games, to to put in a really good performance and get a result. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's a really pertinent point. I think even going before those Leeds and West Brom games, I know they lost the game, but some of them were excellent at Leicester, weren't they, this season? Mm really looked like they could go toe-to-toe with Leicester. One of my favourite games of the season in terms of just watching it, you know, the quality. And, and even going back to last year, you know, you meant, made that really interesting point about being seven points off the playoffs this time last year. And if you think back to that spell, they beat Norwich away, they drew nil nil at Burnley, didn't they? With really good disciplined performance. Obviously, that amazing win against West Brom, which I think was many people's sort of highlight of the season. It was certainly right up there for me. I do think there's maybe something about it, and I don't know whether it's the the youth thing, the inexperienced thing or or whatever it is, but they do seem to lift their game against the better opposition. And, and maybe it's a tactical thing. Maybe it's when the game's more open and there's more space in the playing that they, they, they thrive. But they, they do seem to really rise to the In some strange way, you get more nervous going away to a Rotherham or away to mm. Huddersfield because that they seem to be the games, whether it's a an intensity thing or whatever, you know, that's quite often where we see someone deliver those really flat performances. So I do I do think it's a really good point to raise and I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, I expect them to win at least one of these games and mm. ensure what a talented side they are. The problem is, as we alluded to at the start of this podcast, that you know, four points in the next three games, is that going to be enough? You know, That's potentially going to make the gap even wider, even five, six points. You know, The gap might grow. So I think that's the concern. I don't, it's not that I'm sitting here thinking, oh, suddenly they've got no chance in these next three games. It's the complete opposite. I expect them to give a really good account themselves and, I wouldn't be surprised if they, they took some points off these teams. But the reality is you get into the season where to hit 70 points, they need pretty much two points a game, right? Mm. You know, and at the moment, at the moment, they're not at that level in terms of their consistency, their performance. So I'm not downbeat about the games coming up. I'm looking forward to them. I expect some to do well. I just think realistically, they're going to have to quite suddenly find a level of consistency that this season so far has been beyond them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the issue, isn't it? They're going to need to go on a run between now and the end of the season where they do put together a couple of wins back-to-back. Actually, in their last 12 games last season or after that game against Stoke, they only lost once for the remainder of the season and that was against Sheffield United and they went on that great run at the end of the season under Tony Mowbray and got into the playoffs before that that two-leg tie against Luton, which they came unstuck with. But James, going back to to Saturday and, and the weekend against Swansea, Mike Dodds, he did make some changes. He said after the game he wasn't afraid to make bold decisions. Started with with a back three, but but how concerning was that kind of first half performance? And and do you see that being kind of a, a bad indicator for Sunderland moving forward under Dodds, or do you think it was just just a decision that he made and and he'll do something different against Norwich this weekend? I think it's very interesting. I think he he did maybe sort of overcomplicated and overthink it. We were saying on the post-match video that we do on the YouTube, on the whistle, uh, me and Phil were discussing that Mike Dodds's finest moment sort of came against Leeds United as interim head coach and he got it, you know, tactically spot on that day. But I think a lot of it was down to personnel as well because Sunderland that day, I think off the top of my head, did have Patrick Roberts, Dan Ballard and Jack yeah. Clark all fit. They didn't have that luxury uh, against Swansea City. Swansea City were, were good, I thought, as well. They put a lot of pressure on 
on Sunderland. That midfield balance to me just doesn't look right at times. And I think the inability to keep the ball put a lot of pressure on a centre-back trio that hadn't really played much together. It was yelled as, I think, first first start or first appearance at centre-back for Sunderland. You had, you know, Jensen Sealed, who's been playing predominantly at right-back. So I, I feel, I do feel, I haven't thought about it over the weekend. I thought Mike Dodds had got it wrong and I, I stand by that. But I just feel like it may have been a little bit of a perfect storm as well in terms of, you know, players that are unavailable um, and whatnot. What I did find really interesting, and a couple of stats courtesy, of the Twitter account, uh, SCFC Data Analytics, who, which is run by a lad called Adam. But um, it was the most XG conceded at home with 11 men. And, you mm-hmm. know, the glaring, glaring omission of Clark due to injury as well meant that Sunderland uh, ran the box into the box, uh, sorry, ran the ball into the box only uh, three times, which is the lowest at home this season. Forward passing accuracy of 69% lowest of the season. Uh, and they lost the ball 122 times, including 49 times in the middle third uh, which is the most this season for both stats. So it felt like a really bad day at the office, tactically tactically poor from Dodds, who maybe outthought himself. Although I can absolutely see what he was trying to do. Personnel wasn't there in a bad on a bad run. And I just think, you know, maybe one that you chalk down to to a myriad of, of factors. Hopefully they can bounce mm. back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't it wasn't it wouldn't have been an exaggeration, would it say could have been four 0 quite easily at half time. But, yeah, yeah. but Dodds said after he's not afraid to make bold decisions, we saw him do that. In the Leeds game, and it paid off, and and Sunderland won that game, and it was an excellent performance. But we're going to move on to some of your uh, listener questions that you've sent in to us over the weekend. Um, we'll start with you, Phil, and we've got a question from Kev SAFC. Uh, he says thoughts on Hamir at the weekend. Um, in his opinion, Hamir looked bright when he came on and gave Sunderland more presence through the middle. Says maybe a front three of Rusin, Hamir, and Mundell at Norwich. Yeah, I, th- I did think Hemi looked bright. I think his last couple of um, cameos off the bench at home, the pleasing thing is he hasn't necessarily had much in the way of sight of goal, but he's been a bit more involved with the team, I think. He's he's linked up a little bit better, played some nice layoffs. So I think there are some good signs there. I think that, you know, when I'm thinking back to towards the end of Tony Wilbur's tenure, he sort of was talking a lot about, I need to find opportunities for Hemi. I want to get him starts. But he was always very clear about the scenario in which he felt he could do that. And that was games pretty much at home where he felt someone were going to dominate the ball. I think at the moment, if you, if you speak to anyone really from whether it would be Mowbray, Beale, Mike Dodds now, what they would all say is that, that Hemi is a really good finisher and they really think he's got something that he can add to the team in the box. But at the moment, his game out of possession, you know, the pressing, that side of the game is not quite at the level um, for him to start. So my gut instinct at the moment is that they would probably see games away at Norwich, at home to Leicester or away at Southampton as probably a bit too big of an ask in terms of what you'd have to do out of possession to start him. So I, well, I, I agree with the sentiment and I'd like to see him get more opportunities between now and the end of the season. I, I don't think that's going to happen in this phase. I think once you get past these games, then maybe more so. But I definitely agree that he looked much more on the wavelength of the players around him and there were a few kind of nice moves, wasn't there? But I suppose in some ways we talked about the first half being where the game was lost, and that's absolutely true. But you could argue that it was equally as concerning in the second half, that despite dominating the ball and being the better team, someone barely forced Rush with any saves, did yeah. they? Or well, nine scores from a free kick. Um, the only other save Rush with really had to make was when the goalkeeper went that's up. Um, yeah. So I, I think that in a strange sort of way, the second half was every bit as concerning because that was more like the something mm. we were used to seeing and the performance level was good. But actually, what did they have to show for it? The answer was not really a great deal. So I think that underlines probably 
yeah, I feel like, you know, sometimes you get your system wrong or your selection wrong, but that probably underlined the wider problems that Dodds is going to have to sort of deal with and probably the ones that are much harder to fix. So, yeah, quite a long-winded answer. But, yeah, really encouraged by mm -hmm. him here. Do I think he's going to be starting over the next week? My gut tells me um, that it's probably going to be a bit soon, but I, I'd be really interested to see if that was the case. Mm -hmm. I think for me, for Hamir, I think it's a very different prospect coming in and starting game than coming off the bench for 20 minutes and making an impact. I thought he did make an impact at the weekend, but having watched him a couple of times for the under 21, he's actually struggled to kind of make an impact in those games. And I think clearly Sunderland want to kind of build him up and they invested some a significant amount of money in him in, in the summer or a decent sum. And they're obviously going to want to see him develop. But um, I think it is still, he still may be kind of, somewhere down the pecking order, probably behind Rusin and, and probably behind Burstow at this stage. But it'll be interesting to see how much he does feature for the first team between now and the end of the season, about, particularly if the results maybe don't go Sunderland's way in the next few weeks, if they do drop further down the playoff race. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much football he does get. But moving on to another question, James, we'll come to you on this one. Uh, Joseph Anderson asks on YouTube, has Pato become too comfortable as first choice um, he's not been at his best in his last few matches. Really interesting question. I think I think when it comes to academy graduates and local lads in the team, I do think we can sometimes be a little bit too critical as a fan base. That's saying every aspect of his game isn't perfect. He is young still in goalkeeping terms, although he does have a lot of experience. I think possibly with Anthony Patterson and the way Sunderland squads you know, sort of designed and the way the club is going is that he's going to get a lot of starts because they want to build his value and they want to sort of build from, from the ground up and that's fair enough. But my issue sort of comes that there isn't really a great deal of competition behind him and, and hasn't been for, for some time. We haven't seen a lot of Nathan Bishop, but he's clearly been brought in as a number two, as was Alex Bass behind him. I'm not an advocate that Anthony Patterson should be dropped by any means, but there's not a great deal of experience in and around Sunderland generally. I think it actually relates to the Hamia point as well. Um, you know, who who was Hamia learning off at the, at the Stadium of Light, at the Academy of Light? Yes, he's got Michael Proctor behind the scenes and some very talented coaches, but in terms of Sunderland's playing staff, who can he look at and go, right, that's, that's what I need to be doing in this team? And I think it's a similar issue with Patterson in a sense, although he's performing at a lot higher level than he's been in the team is that there isn't that experience and he's sort of learning on the, learning on the job, which is fine, but there's a lack of competition and there's a lack of a, an older head, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, and speaking to David Priest in the summer about Patterson, Sunderland made it quite clear when they went up from League One that Patterson was going to be their, their first choice goalkeeper. They made the decision not to bring in a more experienced goalkeeper. Patterson is the number one and then they've had Alex Bass last season and then Nathan Bishop this season who we've barely seen feature because Patterson has been number one and, and clearly he's very highly rated. There's been interest from, from Premier League clubs. Um, but as you say, there is, has been that lack of competition for him. Maybe if he does make a few mistakes, he knows he's going to play the next uh, the next week. But I think Patterson overall, the, the two seasons Sunderland have been in the championship overall, he's been a very good performer. Uh, I, 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 was, I was going to say with goalkeeping as well, people are very quick to highlight you know, aspects of goalkeepers' games which maybe aren't as good as others. But in terms of his shot stopping, his commanding of his area, his his presence, his stature have all improved. Um mm. I think I think his his distribution can be hit and miss, but I think largely that's improved as well. 
So I think there are a lot more positives to Anthony Patterson being Sunderland's number one goalkeeper than negatives. But is it human nature, Phil, that sometimes when you don't have that sort of massive competition behind you, that not that he's become complacent, but it, it just, you know, friction yeah. creates a fire in a sense, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I actually think I see it another way. Um, I, I get the point in terms of a bit more experience around the group, but I probably see that more as support, someone to lean on, someone to give some advice, someone to be sort yeah. of there in difficult moments, if you like. I can see that side of it. The competition thing, I probably see it the other way, actually, which is the goalkeeper is the most intense position on the pitch, really, because in some ways it's the most scrutinised. You've got no one there to protect you if you make a mistake. Um, I actually think you could make a strong argument that when you've got a young goalkeeper, it's incredibly important to send them the message that you're going to stick by them and actually mm. not apply mm. that pressure on them that, you know, one mistake which can happen at any time and they're potentially going to be risk losing their place in the team. So I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that putting a fear of his place on him in this case is necessarily going to improve things. And I, and I feel quite strongly about this one, to be honest. I actually think He's done very, very little wrong all season, to be honest. You could mm. argue the only goal I can think of really was maybe the Huddersfield one where he palms it out into a dangerous area. But, you know, was that a huge error? I'm not sure. The one at the weekend, I initially wondered, you know, could he have done a bit better? I watch it back, his reaction time. There's, yeah. I don't really know what else he can do. And and I think sometimes the thing about Patson is because he's so unfussy, I think you can take for granted a goalkeeper of his age um, he makes so few errors coming for crosses. He makes so few bad decisions at set pieces and under high balls. And yeah, the rest of his game distribution and stuff is a work in progress. But you know, I, I have to say that personally, I think it's very, my opinion is it's very low down in terms of the issues with the Sunderland side and why they're maybe not in the playoff race. I think, you know, clearly there's always areas of play can improve, but I think he's a net positive really for Sunderland and what he's about. What you're trying, no, especially in a division in which it's not easy to be a goalkeeper, and the same with League One. No, I, I would agree with that as well. And I'm, as I say, I'm not advocating for Anthony Patterson being dropped, but I just think, in terms of you know having somebody to lean on, as you say, Phil, you know, like a Steve Harper for Jordan Pickford sort of thing. Not to put the fear of God into him to to suggest that he's going to be dropped, but just you know something there and. It, I'm sure that comes from Sunderland's coaching staff as well, but I just think sometimes it can it can help having somebody to look up to. I do take your point though that it is good for a, a young player and a goalkeeper, especially to to have that sort of almost guarantee of games where where you know you're not going to be hung out to dry. You look at the Arsenal situation with sort of Aaron Ramsdale and, and Sanchez and stuff, and it's created a you know a great. It's deal always a story, isn't it? When a mistake, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a story, and it's become a bit of a circus, really. Let's face it, mm. hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that coming for crosses as well, Phil, that you mentioned there. I think that's an area of his game you've clearly seen improve. I remember the first game, one of the first games he came in away at Wickham and they were bombarding him with crosses after uh, every corner and, and he did struggle that day. But since then, I think he's really improved that side uh, of his game. But I think Oliver Kahn would struggle against Wickham in League One, though. Yeah, every ball was on him from the corners and uh, yeah, it, was, it was a tough day to be a goalkeeper. But uh, we'll look at... Some of your other questions, um, John Williams says Ballard was a big miss on Saturday. Um, Phil, how big a miss was Dan Ballard? Obviously, he was suspended for the game against Swansea. He's going to be suspended again for the game against Norwich um, because he got 10 yellow cards and suspended for two games. But just how much did Sunderland miss him um, against Swansea? Yeah, he's a huge miss, really. I think that in some ways it's quite difficult to... I think identify how influential that was to the result just because because Sunderland played a different way 
it was really difficult to judge Seal against Ballard just in terms mm. of the roles they were doing was different with it being a back three. And I think that when, I, when you look back at the first half, the issues really, I thought, were as much with the shape as anything because what Swansea were able to do really regularly was to get those two wing-backs, um, Ronald and Placetta, into those the gaps between the centre-half and the full-back really, really, really frequently. The biggest issue, I think, was probably not on Ballard's side. I think it was potentially on, on the other flank, where I think Styles and Yelda, I'm not even in any way a criticism of them. I just don't think the, the chemistry was quite there yet, which mm. you wouldn't expect it to. And obviously the fact that Styles has been asked to do a bit of a hybrid role where he sort of drifted in field in possession. Because it wasn't working for Sunderland on the ball, I think that left a lot of sort of space for Swansea to attack. So I've got, you know, Ballard's a massive miss because, you know, it's the same with all nine, really. Their athleticism allows you to defend really high up the pitch, which adds to your attacking game. And they're also both excellent in 1v1 duels, which means it's very difficult, you know, when you're playing at your best, for the opposition to really have a focal point and sort of um, stymie what you're doing on the ball. So I thought he was a... I thought it was a huge loss, but I think you could make an argument that it wasn't in the first half, at least, where the game was won and lost. And, and maybe mm-hmm. if someone had played the same way, even with Ballard, there would have been some issues there. Um, but I'll be really interested because I think Seal will be a bit disappointed. Like I say, I, I wouldn't put it, pin it on him, but I think he'll feel like he's got a bit more in his best position to show. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully he can do that at Norwich this weekend. Because I have to say, I, I do I do like what I've seen from Seal by and large. Um, mm. I think he's been a steady operator and I think he could be a good player for the club going forward. So I'm hoping that maybe in a bit more of a familiar shape on Saturday and, and a bit more settled, he might be able to show a bit more what he's all about. But mm-hmm. I, the other thing I would say is we talk a lot about leadership, don't we, especially in those periods. Ballard, I think, has become one of the biggest voices on the pitch for some of yeah. this season. I think he's got a lot of championship experience now and that is definitely something that I think you probably miss when it's not there because he has become you know, one of the senior figures in that dressing room despite how young he actually mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I think from the players that left in the summer, people like Danny Bart, Lyndon Gooch, um, Bailey Wright, I think the two that probably stepped up the most is Dan Neal and, and Dan Ballard as terms of that kind of the younger players coming through um, as leaders. And yeah, I think you saw kind of that disorganisation really in, in the back line on, on Saturday when, when Ballard wasn't there. But um, Phil mentioned Seal there, James. Um, I agree. I, I like what I've seen from Seal, but I think the problem for him is kind of some games he's been playing out at right back. Um, on Saturday, he was on the right of a back three. Um, we've seen kind of good qualities from him, but kind of been moving around positions. And I don't think we've really maybe seen him in his best position, which is maybe as a centre-back um, in a back four. Do you see Dodds maybe changing it on, on Saturday against against Norwich? And uh, kind of how do you see that all affect Seals? Well, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm really not sure what Mike Dodds will, will do against Norwich. Obviously, he, as you mentioned, came out in the post-match press conference and said that he's going to make bold decisions. So he might double down on that. He might rein it in. Um, I don't know. I could see him moving to a back four. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as you mentioned, I think Seals been by and large good I, I can definitely see why he's being brought to the club I think for me uh he looks best as a right back at the moment but I can definitely see qualities there that would lend to him being a, an excellent centre back you know I think the problem with the weekend was that we touched on that it was a, a really unfamiliar you know back five as it were or a back three yeah. um with all nine in the middle you know he's playing he was playing right centre back wasn't he so you know, is that a position he's massively familiar with? He's been playing right back, but then he's got a right wing back. So that has that sort of muddled his brain in terms of his positioning. Mm-hmm. Yelder on the on the left hand side of that, again, Phil mentioned with Callum Styles, that's not a partnership which has developed um 
had chance to develop at all yet, obviously, with it being Stars' debut. Yelda, obviously, a January signing as well. So it was just very muddled. It, it didn't work, and I think that was due due to personnel. But in terms of sealed, I, I do really like what I've seen. And it's like anything, isn't it? You need you need a run in the position to, to, to get going. I mean, when he first came in at right back, and he first started playing there, it was a little inconvincing at times, didn't really look like he knew where he needed to be. That comes with games and it comes with time. It comes with, you know, working on the training pitch, building up those those um, those uh, connections on the field. But yeah, I think obviously your nine's going to get suspended at some point, isn't he? Because he's he's on nine. So, you know, you'd he's expect... Three more three more games before the cutoff. Is it only three now? That's flown by. So yeah, yeah. He, could, he could conceivably get through it. But yeah, I think... Yeah, I would definitely, I wouldn't bet against him getting a yellow card in these mm. next three games. But obviously, he's going to be up, possibly out. So there's a little, there's a little window of opportunity there for Silk to play potentially alongside Ballard. But that's the question, isn't it? Will Magdods trust him in a in a back four, or does he want that protection of a of a back five? And will he go down that route with one of Ballard or um, O9 suspended? I actually think that Silk could could do a job in a in a back four, and that's probably where he's more comfortable just given what we know mm. about him from from his time in Holland and, and and such like but really interesting and I think one thing that we sort of forget about is Sunderland's defensive injuries as well like Sirk and Huggins Elise I know he's on mm. his way back but they, they would have offered a, a great deal had they been available for those for those games so it's a shame in that regard as well mm -hmm. yeah it was important I think on the weekend that 09 didn't get books or they would have been going into this game against Norwich without Ballard and 09 um, we've seen that before earlier in the season but Son are maybe not as well equipped to to deal with that as well as the injuries that you mentioned. People like Elise, Huggins, um, Sirkin all out um, have been losses as well this season. Um, but thanks a lot for everyone for sending in your questions um, and please keep sending them in and we'll read them out on the podcast um, and try and answer them as best we can. Um, but we're going to come to a report um, that broke over the weekend um, that's caused quite a bit of conversation on social media um, it came from the Suns Alan Nixon saying that uh, Alex Neal would be open to a return to Sunderland um, now can either either of you see any kind of scenario where this kind of happens because clearly a lot has has gone on since Alex Neal decided to to leave Sunderland and join Stoke um, no I can't no. but then me like, I, I, I don't want to be too strong about it because like Sunderland um, to have a habit of surprising you and, and when Tony Mowbray went I probably wouldn't have that stage of, if you'd asked me if Michael Bill would be the next Sunderland head coach I, I would probably have said that I saw that as unlikely now, I think there's like a couple of factors to it like has Alex Neal completely changed his view on Sunderland's recruitment model is happiness working as a head coach with you know a sort of relatively limited input on sign-ins and that kind of thing Um my suspicion is he probably hasn't changed his view and we know that Sunderland aren't going to change how they operate. So that immediately makes me think that it's unlikely, even in terms of Sunderland matching up what they want from a head coach and, and, and Alex Neil. The second point I was make is, do I think that Sunderland would, would entertain the idea of bringing Alex Neil back, given the way it kind of unfolded and, and, and the way he left sort of the day before a game? My feeling is that I, I'm not convinced that while... I think the relationships are relatively am amicable. I don't know if you remember, but when Sunderland went on a um, winter break during the the World Cup last winter, Stoke City yeah, were out yeah. there, um, and and I know that there was a lot of conversations had, and there was sort of hands shaking, and and it was all fairly amicable. So I don't think it's like 
you know, they're, they're not on speaking terms or anything like that. But I do think to see them working together again, that feels to me like a bridge too far. And what I would say again is, you know, people might not believe it because, like I say, they didn't get what we thought they would go for when Mowbray left. But I still expect it to be like a younger, someone who's not operated as a manager in the past, very much a, a head coach, if you like, coach first. Um, I just still don't see Neil in that mould. It was a union that sort of worked for everyone until it didn't. Mm. And I, for me, I don't think anything has really changed on that front. And I also do still think that the way he left ultimately has probably left things beyond going back into a working relationship. So like, I would genuinely be stunned. That's the only yeah, word I could use. Yeah, yeah. Um, stunned is the only word I could use. But you feel like you feel like you have to caveat everything, don't you? Because I'm, you know there's some strange things could happen in the world of football. But I, I don't see it, and I it wouldn't actually sit right with me to be honest. After mm. you know, I, I totally understood it from Alex Neil's perspective. He was getting greater power, you know, financially. I'm sure there was big incentives for him. I totally understood his decision and respected it. No problem with that. But actually, yeah, personally, I'm not sure how well that would sit with me. Really, I, I think you have to have a really, really good reason for going back. I think. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure in this case. No, I'd like to see something go in a different direction, personally. But we'll see. I actually, I actually find this quite interesting. I agree with everything Phil said, but, but and but, you know, when Alex Neil came to the club, Sunderland's model, Sunderland's way of doing things under a little bit of scrutiny, Sunderland's ownership under a little bit of scrutiny. Um, it's under similar levels of scrutiny again, and and possibly could be in the summer. Alex Neil needs to rebuild his career. He's out of work again. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but pressure does funny things to people. And there's that little sort of parallel to me. Obviously, you have to preface that with the way Alex Neil left the club the day before a game. You know, Sunderland have made one pretty unpopular managerial decision with Michael Beale. This would be equally, if not more unpopular, given the way Alex Neil left the club, which is pretty impressive given the absolutely sterling work he did to get Sunderland out of League One. That moment that he gave us at, at Sheffield Wednesday, the moment that he gave us at Wembley, you know, in front of fans for the first time since 1973. These are not insignificant things for a club like Sunderland and the fan base, but to have soured that with the way he left the club um, so significantly to the point where I've done a a little poll on on social media about this issue asking for fans and their views and it's got 22 hours left to run but there's already been 1500 votes and it's 80 87% no um Sunderland fans wouldn't be open to Alex Neil's return in the summer so i think that's pretty telling but the the thing that sticks out in my mind is that actually you know Sunderland might need an injection of something at some point and Alex Neil is a very good coach and he's out of work whether that bridge with the fans could be could be crossed is is a different matter, but I just found that little that little facet interesting. Yeah, it would be a huge shock, wouldn't it? I mean, we've said that before with with other things about Sunderland, but uh, it would be a massive shock. And as you mentioned there, the the backlash that there was towards Michael Beale, we saw how that ended. You'd expect there to be a similar backlash if if Alex Neil kind of they even entertained the idea of bringing him back. So, uh, um, but it did did definitely, as you say, James cause a lot of uh, conversation on social media, but. Just the last few minutes of the podcast, we'll just look ahead to Sunderland's game this weekend. They're away at Norwich, who are going quite well in the championship at the minute. They're up to seventh. They're on, are on a good run. Uh, Phil, can you see any changes uh, to the team that, that Mike Dodds could make? We've got a, a comment here. Um, with promotion seemingly gone, is it now a chance to try a few fringe players like Chris Rigg, etc.? Are there any changes that you think Dodds might make to the side uh, on Saturday? 
Yeah, I think there's two facets to it. One in response to that question we just had is I think it's still a little bit early for that mm-hmm. in terms of we think it's highly unlikely for someone to get into the playoffs, but I don't think you can operate in that manner just yet. I think you still have to believe you can get in there. You also have to say, if we're talking about these players and giving them an opportunity, is it fair and right to put them in against in these certain games or do you have to win? You know, I mentioned the challenge with him here earlier. Is mm-hmm. it going to do him good necessarily to play in these games? I think that's a fair question. The other facet as it is, there will be rotation because it's a three-game week. You know, you go, you play Leicester on, on Tuesday and then it's another long trip to Southampton. You know, I don't see Job, for example, playing 390 minutes because I just, you know, I, I think that's going to be a bridge too far for a few players. So I think there will be changes. Um, I don't envisage sort of wholesale changes. I think the obvious one for me is to bring Mundell in. Let's go back yeah. to something a little bit more familiar, if you like. Um I was really impressed with him in the first half against Birmingham. Obviously, you've got a manager's minute. I thought he did okay the other night. He put one brilliant cross in that just nobody was quite there to meet. So, you know, I think Mundell's the obvious one for me. Let's have another look at him. Let's give, give him another opportunity. He didn't look phased at Birmingham, so, so why not give him a go? Beyond that, I have to say at this stage, I don't envisage any major changes other than I think you'll have to freshen things up in the midfield over the course of the week. Maybe Aushish is someone who's sort yeah. of knocking on the door for another opportunity. Really disappointing the way things went, I think, after the Ipswich game. I don't think it was quite right that, you know, you sort of almost blamed for the defeat and then just kind of didn't get another opportunity yeah. in the games pre- following. If you think back to Mowbray, do you remember when Equa made that, gave that penalty away against Hull? Yes, and there was a lot of criticism. And, and he started Absolutely. the next game, didn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. I thought that was, you know, Mowbray criticised him, but then started in the next game. And yeah, yeah, anyway, that's a bit of an aside, but you get my point in terms of, you know, I think Aushish deserves... Another chance. I hoped. Uh, so they're the two. I think that over the course of the week, Aushish and Mundell, I would like to see them start one, maybe two games to have another look yeah. at them. Um, Rig definitely wants to see more between now and the end of the season. I think that's really, really important. Whether it'll be this Saturday, I suspect not. But I'd like to see him. Yeah, I'd like to see him start four or five games before the end of the year. Definitely. Could you maybe mm-hmm. see, see him bringing Burstow back in for one of those games, Phil? Just with it being three in a week, as you say. One of the three, I think. I think Reeson will probably start two, and I think Burst will start one. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. definitely how I see. Although interestingly, Burst has not kicked the ball under Mike Dodds yet, so that's four games now. And yeah, Burstle's yeah, yeah. not um, not made a single appearance from the bench or either. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. Um, it suggests that you know he, he sees Reeson or Job um, as a better option at this time. But yeah, I think you know because Reeson hasn't played all that much over the course of the season, I just don't see him start three games in a week. Could he play Job up front instead and bring Aushish or Rig in? That's definitely one to watch as well. I, I think that's, like I say, it'd be interesting to see what happens with Burst. I think he'll start again, but it's probably interesting that across four games, you know, Dodds is, Dodds is yet to use him. I'd be interested to see how that develops. Pembele as well, Joe. You'd want to get Pembele some minutes at some point, wouldn't you? I think so, yeah. He, he looked bright for the under-21s when I saw him come back around December, but yeah, we've barely, we've only really seen him off the bench, haven't we? I mean, I mean... He's the obvious right back. I mean, if, if Hume had to go to left back, say if, if Yelda was unavailable or they, they wanted to bring Pembele in, that's maybe an option, but you'd want to probably keep Hume. And I think that's the problem that, that Lyndon Gooch had in the, in, in the summer, the fact that Hume was mm. going to be first mm. choice. So he had to go and, and, and get first team football. But Pembele is another one I'd, I'd like to see, see a bit more of. He looks very athletic, um, very attacking going forward. And he's obviously been at PSG. So um, I'd be quite highly rated from, from coming from there. So I, I do hope he... We see him more in the end of the season, but it is hard to kind of fit him in the team when when Tri Hume's playing so well and, and wants to play every game. But uh, but that kind of brings us to the end of today's Raw podcast. Um, thanks a lot for everyone that has sent in their questions. 
and you can send in more ahead of um, Saturday's game against Norwich and we'll be back with another podcast next Monday. So once again, thanks a lot for listening to the Raw podcast.